Hey, good morning, everybody. It's really good to be back uh, today. And we kind of have a topic that is uh, gathering some attention uh, this past winter. As I think it's been building. Uh, it's, a, it's an honor for me to have Bob Recker on. Uh, he's one of the, I'm going to say, leaders in looking at wide row corn. And um, so, uh, Bob, I'm, I'm not going to waste any time here. I'm going to turn it over to you. You can tell everybody what you want to about yourself. And you can uh, launch into your presentation, and if we have some questions during the way, we'll stop, or, or at the end, we'll have some questions. So go ahead, Bob. Tell us a little bit where you're from and what you've been doing, and um, and uh, talk to us about wide row corn. Okay, very good. Thank you, Steve, uh, and thank you for having me, and uh, good to see the, the highly geographically diverse, and it looks like practice-wise diverse uh, group of folks here. So, yeah, I'm going to roll through here. Rules of engagement are feel free to interrupt at any time. I think Steve has got his finger on the mic mute button, but uh, mm -hmm. uh, if, you, if you want to interrupt, that's fine. I would much rather this be a conversation rather than death by PowerPoint. So, uh, <laughs> And I'll try to keep an eye on the, uh, on the little message box in case there's a question. Uh, and, Steve, feel free to jump in if I miss anything. Sure. So, yep. by the way, by way of background here, um, and and as we've heard in the in the uh, in the meet and greet conversations, there water is an issue these days. Uh, and you all you own the soil. What I've been telling folks is you own the soil, but you're just loan the water. You get it for a little while, and then you send it down the road. And and you all deal with economics, and the cover crop world, you know, has is trying to figure out how to make that work. And ultimately, we want to grow more food. We can't just put everything in set aside. So the bottom line, uh, and, and we're going to come back to this, but but basically what, what I feel is that with wide row corn, uh, you can dedicate half of your corn growing space to improving your triple bottom line with a little impact. And we're going to put a number on the little impact when we're all done here. Uh, in terms of what you get out of your field. So I uh, grew up on a farm. Uh, my dad was a strong believer in uh, us learning as early as we could. These days they call that child abuse. I called <laughs> it the joy of growing up on a farm, and I wouldn't trade the experience for anything. Uh, a number of years down the line, I was making a pitch to a, to a grumpy old accountant factory manager, and we had a good story, but he pulled out a dollar bill, and he says, Bob, he says, in God we trust, everybody else brings data. So uh, <laughs> I have a for data. Uh, and those of you who, who may have been uh, exposed a little bit to what I've done in the past, uh, I, I'm a retired engineer, uh, and thus I like, I like data and numbers and all of that. Uh, it's been a humbling experience working in the agronomy world because nature is chaotic uh, by nature, and and there's a lot of variability. So I'm always, I went into this thinking that, that, gee, if I would apply my engineering experience, we could make every corn plant the same and every corn row the same. But then, uh, as my son says, nature gets to vote. And what I've learned is nature throws a lot of variability at it. So my, my focus really has been how to leverage that variability, particularly in the area of sunlight harvest. Uh, you see some graphics here that have individual plant yield. Uh, when I get when I get really engaged, that's where I really like to be in detailed research. But as growers, what I have found is 
you don't see any pictures of yield maps here because yield maps are pretty fuzzy. They aren't real high resolution, and you aren't sure whether you believe them. What I have learned is if I'm talking to a group of folks, and if I've got field length way wagon data, people accept that. So I've ended up building up quite an entourage of, of what used to be production equipment, which for me is now uh, research equipment, basically. But uh, my gold standard is if I got a half mile roll, I'll harvest it one row at a time uh, with my with my little combine there and weigh it, and that becomes that becomes pretty uh, useful data. So I'm going to back up, not back up. I'm going to give you just a little bit of context uh, and help you set the stage for how you look at stuff. Uh, Steve is obviously leading you guys down uh, a very uh, adventuresome road with cover crops and all that. In the corporate world, uh, the corporation I was I was associated with. They had a rule that said 4% of sales, that's not profit, 4% of sales went to R&D. And that was divided up between current product, continuous improvement, that's fixing the oil leaks and the little customer complaints and that sort of stuff. A lot of people, not very much hardware in that part of the operation. New programs is where you were working on what was next. That was the big gorilla in the engineering world, and that's where you had a lot of money tied up and 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 it was a it was a really big deal. Later in my career, in the waning years in my career, I finally got to the job I, I should have been in the whole time, and that was advanced engineering. And our rule there was we wanted 10% of the R&D budget, or 10% of the 4%. Um, and so if you think about advanced engineering, four-tenths of the sales, we wouldn't worry about replications. If we could get something through a demo meeting out in the desert someplace with a bunch of executives to demonstrate the, the value of a concept, we would do that. Things like uh, uh, guidance came out of the advanced engineering world, uh, suspended uh, suspensions, that sort of stuff. We would have a field day. If we had 10 different stations, we were showing people things. Uh, if we got one of those things committed to production, we felt pretty good about it. So why do you care about that? If you think about your farming operation, every day you are doing continuous improvement. You're looking at things. You're looking at uh, imagery, hopefully. You're out scouting. You're looking for ways to take some money out of your operation. Uh, you're benchmarking with others around the country, around the world, and also the guy across the fence. And then there's marketing support, which I consider building relationships with your landlords and all that. So. So that takes a lot of your time and a lot of your energy, but you're not tying up a lot of money in it. It's just paying attention. And, it, and it's worth paying attention to because that's what you live and die by. If you think about new practices, this is when you're making an equipment purchase or you're thinking about you know, changing seed varieties and, and trying some different treatments. Uh, you're looking at what other people's experiments are, are doing kind of in sessions like this today. Uh, you may do some some of your own strip trials. This is the area in which you're making you know the big buck purchases, and so you want to be careful. You don't you don't just go buy something because somebody said it was a good idea or try it. You you test it first. In the advanced model, uh, this is and and I've had people after presentations come up and say you know that's an interesting way to look at it. I'm suggesting you take ten percent of four percent of your land and just try something crazy. Try something that you're not sure if it's going to work. 
Uh, most people don't want it by the road. Uh, it's nice to, if you can be where I can monitor it. And you'll learn more from what doesn't work than what does work. And, and that's a point that many people have made to me. You just, you learn more when things don't go well. When they go pretty well, then it's kind of like, okay, so what, what was that all about? So for every thousand acres that you farm, my suggestion is you're doing continuous improvement on 960 acres. On 40 acres, you should be trying something new, whether it's a new treatment, a new cover crop species, or, uh, you know, hire somebody to come in and do strip tilling or do some no-till, that sort of thing. And then on a corner of that 40 acres, a little four-acre patch, do something just crazy. Do something that, that you're, just, you're just trying it to see what happens. So what we're talking about today really came from that concept of advanced work. Uh, and so we didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't, you know, we didn't know. We didn't really care. But, uh, but what we're saying is that we think there's some real potential here with the sunlight harvest that came out of this. So for me, this is no longer advanced. It's become my new practice. But if you haven't done it before, then think of it as advanced. Think of four acres, not 40 or 1,000 acres. So, and I know some of you in the call have been doing uh, wide rows already. So for you, it's not a high-risk deal. It's kind of a known quantity. But if you haven't done it before, don't leap in with both feet. That's, that's my counsel. I really got exposed to the sunlight thing back in 2004. I was still uh, working at Deer. was in the advanced engineering group. There was a guy near here that was doing strip intercropping. Uh, he, he wanted wide tires on 120-inch tread as a tractor guy. I thought it was going to – and it was hard on MFWD axles. So I borrowed a combine to go out and prove that this was a really bad thing, that those big tires would just kill the uh, yield in the rows. What I found by accident was those edge rows in his strips did really well. So I borrowed a combine, harvested it one row at a time because I was looking for higher-resolution data. He'd come rolling in with his 12-row combine, you know, it's gone. But, but I could learn more by going one row at a time. So that, there I, I really spent several years working the strip intercropping thing. Some of you, uh, I think you guys are all pretty innovative. I, I don't doubt that some of you have probably tried this or followed it a little bit when others are trying it. Um, a guy named Rick Cruz at Iowa State did a lot of work on this in the 90s. Uh, my brother said, well, if you think that'll work, in full disclosure, he's a pioneer dealer, a uh, very good one, and is, works with his son. But he said, well, if you want to put a few strips on the home place, you can do that. So I did that in 2009. Uh, I have another good friend, uh, another uh, retired John Deere engineer who did 20-inch strip intercropping. And at this point, I was getting more interested in the higher resolution uh, levels of data. So you see the individual row yield there across this 12-row strip. And so the overall strip there was put by the scope, which is red. The field wanted to be a 240, 230, 240 bushel field, but the edge rows did really well. But the sun, the sunlight thing is such that it's only the outside row and the next row in. So I said, well, okay, if we're really going to leverage the sunlight, we just ought to have four-row strips. Well, most people don't want to hear about four-row strips. But I had a, another friend that uh, had some junk ground, and, and uh, you can tell by how it looks there that this floods a lot. Uh, he had tried to grow crops on it but just finally gave up. 
But he says, Bob, you go, you go back in the corner there. You can do whatever you want. So I was tr experimenting. I said, well, if I can get enough corn off these four rows, then I don't need anything else. That was, that was the theory. And the, and, the, and the thought here was, okay, what orientation works best for sunlight harvest? And what this field taught me was uh, topography trumps sunlight every time. So it's better to farm with the, with the topography than it is worrying about sunlight harvest. So go forward a few more years, and, and, uh, and I just finally gave up on trying to grow my own pots. I didn't have the right equipment. I didn't have the chemical knowledge. Uh, I, I couldn't stay ahead of the weeds, and, and there was just too much for this tired old engineer to try to know. And it, it was a humbling experience, and it made me in awe of everybody that goes out there every year and grows a crop. It also makes me appreciate why you don't go do stuff different just for the heck of it because you're always building on an experience base. But what happened is a grower, uh, not too far from here, said, well, and he had me fly some aerial images of his crops, and then we did a little, a little tiny ear sampling plot. And after about three years, he says, well, Bob, if you want to plant a few rows in my field, I can. And this was a multi-thousand-acre multi guy. So the commitment I made to him is I wouldn't take more than one minute of his planting season or more than one minute of his harvest season for my plots. So he'd be planting along. He'd lift his planter, skip down about 200 rows, and just keep going. And then when so I'd come in usually the same day or try to be the same day. And I would do my little experiments with different roll widths, different populations, and that sort of stuff. And for me, this was this was fun because I used my little planter, which is kind of a tiny commercial ag planter, uh, and I could use my equipment, and and the data was pretty meaningful. So I'm going to throw around some numbers, and and this is this is the first liar doesn't have a chance part of the uh, conversation. So. I like to talk about row yield. I like, in this picture, I like talking about 348 and 360 bushels per acre. But growers don't want to talk about individual plants or rows or tiny plots. They want to talk about what goes to the elevator. So in this case here, and this was uh, uh, my 2017 strips, when I was looking to put tram lines in to run a big sprayer, I had concluded from, from a bunch of work that, that I could take this roll out if I increase the population on either side and get just as much corn. So I had a 348 bushel roll and then the, the, and this year it was a 240 bushel field. So the edge rolls were good. The strip there averaged 298 bushels. Well, that's pretty good. That's the average of the four rows. But the grower reminds me that I left the roll out for every four so I got to go back to five rows for this four rows of corn, and that gets me 238 bushels. So um, the bottom line is I've learned to always talk about field yield, but you really understand how you can leverage sunlight when you go back to row yield. So in 2017, a friend of mine made a dare. He said, Bob, you know, you ever run around talking about sunlight, and you got now you're talking about skipping a row and all that. Why don't we just plant corn in 40-inch rows like we used to? Good friend of mine, he's the guy that owned, that loaned me the uh, junk ground for my earlier experiments. So in 2017, I, I had a plot. I Up here in the 
this is looking north up on the northwest corner i had some extremely low population stuff uh i did some experimenting with what we call 20 40 rows where you uh, have different row spacings my main uh strip here was the was the four row strips and then over here on the side we had some different things but in the middle here were my 60 inch rows so i took i i uh the nice people at bex gave me a uh a trunk full of small seed samples and so i did that and i always plant uh whatever the grower is planting in the field so and then i go in and i and i set the planter so it skips a little bit here and i have a little alley so, and I'll go in and I'll handpick some little plots. You can see them there. I don't know if my cursor shows up or not. I, we should have verified that, Steve. But uh, but you can kind of see some nits and nats there. But this is about a 20-acre field that has like, uh, like 100 and some different combinations. And with the exception of a few replications, there's almost every row is a different treatment. So this graphic here, and I, I'm not going to torture you too much with it, but the, the main thing, if you start on the left, uh, in this particular field in 2017, I go in and I ask the grower to leave me one planter pass where he planted it. So I go in and measure what he, what he did with his process, his equipment, and then I always plant the same thing, the same population, the same uh, uh variety as he did next to his and and it's it's almost a statistical anomaly but both of these turned out the same i do that with my experiments because i want to have the confidence that i can plant corn as good as he can and and it's taken me a lot of years to get there but i could pretty much do that uh, on demand these days uh and then then we had some uh, uh bex hybrid in there didn't do quite as well uh and then with the code here on this graphic is four rows skip one these are my tramline plots okay and and so this is field yield i'm not talking about row years row yield here it's the field yield so i'm allowing for the skipped rows okay so i came in at all oh, this is pretty good okay uh, my tramline thing worked i can put in i can take out two rows for sprayer pass with fat tires on the sprayer or whatever and and i can do okay uh the third bar here with with the lower yield was a combination that the Bex folks provided me and what this told me loud and clear is that most people that really understand seed corn and varieties they don't really nothing really accommodates the sunlight harvest yet in their thinking so what they thought was going to be great wasn't and what was just a generic one did actually did better what gets more interesting over here is on the right the set of numbers here on the 60 inch rows and each of these was two rows one row up and a row back on my planter and so you see a bunch of different varieties there and you see a number of different populations and the population where it says 82k uh if you look at the one on the far lower right it says 68k that's 68,000 population per row. And since that's a 60-inch row, the field population is 34K. So the grower was planting at 34K that year. So, so that's just what I did. But then, and, and I've got a really nice little planter with electric drive. So 
I can I can easily change it. So I kicked a couple of them up to higher populations. In some cases, uh, the yield went up with higher populations. In the case of the main the main uh, variety that the grower was using, Pioneer Eleven Ninety Seven, it's known for not wanting high populations. People that have run trials say it really does better if you don't have such high population, and it went down a bit with uh, with the higher population. Now, uh, Jack Boyer, my statistician friend here, uh, will remind me that none of this is really relevant because I don't have enough replications. Uh, but if you lump all these together, basically it's saying that statistically those are all the same yield given the, the lack of replications. And, and that's part, uh, there's only one that was better than the field yield, but, but assuming that it, that it was going to be a train wreck going in planting corn at only 60 inches, but no, which nobody has done for years and years, uh, they came in pretty good. So it came in at the, at the 95% level. And so I, I presented this data, uh, in some meetings, uh, and, uh, and and people were paying attention. But I spent a lot of time in the winter looking at images, looking at pictures, trying to figure out why things happen. I tend to do experiments and then try to learn from the experiment rather than creating a scenario. Okay, well, if I do this, then that'll work. And then, okay, now I'm going to go verify that. I tend to be a little bit more adventuresome and just trying stuff. So if you look straight down in the corn plot, you, you can see the ground. You know, like, well, this is crazy. You're you're wasting sunlight. Uh, so I have a series of pictures here, and, and I, I go and I put uh, plot cameras like you get at Cabela's or whatever, and I set them on time lapse. And so I'll take a picture every 30 minutes. And, and so I, and I'll do that as the corn's coming up. I'll do it all. I'll leave the, the, the camera there all summer long. And so I'm going to really quickly run you through, uh, one day in a cornfield. And so here we are on the 1st of July. It's 5.30 in the morning. The sun came up. And now I'm going to go forward to about, uh, I think the screen has caught up. Here we're at 9.30 in the morning. Notice, and these are, this is looking south in north-south rows. Notice the east side of the west row of the opening is bathed in sunlight over here. And you look over here in the 30-inch stuff, and this is the 60-inch opening, the wide opening. The narrow opening here is, is 30 inches. There's a little sunlight getting through, but it's basically dark. So, so from 9.30 until about noon, that, that corn gets a whole bunch of sunlight. Uh, but if you are looking at the other row, now when you go into the afternoon, the west side of the east row is getting bathed in sunlight. And it's still dark in the 30-inch rows. They, unless you happen to be the lucky leaf that's in the top four or five leaves. Now the west side, excuse me, the east side of the west row is now dark. So when I when I went through these, I finally figured out, okay, well here I am at 4:30 in the afternoon, and this this row is still getting all this sunlight. So up until up until 2017, I had never done single row wide row corn. I was always looking at the edge effect. Because to me, the big deal was sunlight on the edge. And it wasn't until I looked at this series of pictures that I concluded, oh, wait a minute. It's because that wide row is getting, it's an east-facing edge in the morning and a west-facing edge in the afternoon. So 
so it, it can really harvest the sunlight. Therefore, it can tolerate really high populations, which has been, been the experience. So go there and say, okay, that's great. Okay, so the learning, the, the learning for me was, wait a minute, I can put corn in 60-inch rows. I now, I can, I don't need a fancy planter because it's the same population on all of them. I don't need, you know, electric drive meters. That's one population. Uh, I already have, you know, 30-inch planters. I can just turn, turn things off. I don't need new corn heads and all that sort of stuff. The nutrient, it's, it's all so simple. It's not quite the easy button. And the problem is you didn't get more corn. So if all you want to do in life is grow corn and haul it to town and sell it and have a scorched earth weed program, it doesn't do you any good because you didn't get any more corn. And the risk is you will get something in those rows because nature abhors a vacuum. So I'm going to go back to these slides here a little bit. Because you guys care about cover crops, right here we are at noon, okay? And so at noon, this thing, all of that open space is getting all that sunlight. And in fact, if I go back a little further, after about 10 o'clock, the ground between the corn rows is getting bathed in sunlight. So while I don't understand cover crops very well, and I don't know a fraction of what you guys do, what I am is the enabler of great cover crops because if you put the corn in wide rows, you now have a golden opportunity to do whatever you want with that open space between the rows. And hopefully you're finding value there. You're not going to get more corn. I got to keep saying that. And you must do something or you will have weeds or you will have erosion. So then the question becomes, what do I do with all that extra sunlight? Uh, and Steve, I, I think we're on schedule and we're going to make it here. Uh, and you all are a cover crop gang. And, and I, I used to go in and just mow the grass. And, and then when I was making some presentations in January of 2018, there were people in the audience and they just, they were kind of just sitting there. Okay. Here's Bob, you know, out rattling away. And they sat up and started taking notice and looking at the pictures. And after a little investigation, I figured out they were folks that had, had stock cows and they were wanting to graze their fields after harvest and when they saw the pictures of all this cover crop they said well this is this is interesting you know so so the grazing is really i think the the silver bullet in this but as steve and i were talking before the meeting neither one of us are dying to go back to handling livestock and most of you probably aren't either but on the other hand uh you know if you're a student of uh gabe brown's uh uh, approach and all that, you know, he likes livestock. So, uh, my good friend, Lauren Steinlage up in uh, West Union, he says, well, Bob, I kind of, I kind of like your story about sunlight and I understand you're going to do some 60 inch rows, but I think, I think I'm going to put in some two rows and then I'm going to skip one because that way every row is an edge row. Okay. I'm like, well, that's okay. So I did some of that and the data was in the graph we looked at and it basically basically came out the same as either the 60 inch or the or the twin rows but lauren was a uh, well down the road on on soil health and diverse mixtures of cover crops so i i went up to his place in september snapped the picture and kind of this is good you know and so that picture uh, has gotten a lot of people's attention and, and interest uh so this is the same day lauren's plot on the left is his 60 inch opening and on the right is the 30-inch opening. 
and most of you that are that are struggling to make cover crops work are would be pretty happy with what's in the 30 inch opening i suspect most of you would be delighted with what's in the 60 inch opening there um now i also i have a little a little uh narrow tractor and a little narrow cedar and and so i'll go out and, and i've tried to put i tried to just put oats in the 60 inch rows because my grower really hates weeds and he really worries when i have these open spaces but he's really good at weed treatment and in fact uh i i coined the term scorched earth because uh, that's basically where he operates if it isn't corn it ain't gonna grow and so i've seeded cover crops into his wide into the wide rows i planted on his field and and nothing's going to happen so the point of this is uh you aren't going to magically get great cover crops uh unless you really think about uh herbicide carryover and and what's been in the field before and and all that sort of stuff and how you can have the cover crop outgrow the weeds and all of that sort of stuff uh i see a question here let me let me try to respond to that uh Jack, I'm going to let Jack jump in with the biomass yield uh, measurement. I think he has some knowledge on that. Jack, uh, just think about that. We'll 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 come back to you in a minute here, uh, if you're if you're willing. Uh, so so I did make these presentations in in the Practical Farmers of Iowa meeting in Ames in January of 2018, and and people started calling me, and and so. Okay, give me your email, and I and I created this really nice replicated trial, statistically robust, uh, randomized layout, and I sent out a bunch of powerpoints. Okay, this is what you got to plant, and it got real quiet. And then and then uh, as planting season approached, I'd get this phone call, and and I'm sitting in my tractor, and the guy I can hear the vacuum fan running in the background. He says, "So Bob, tell tell me again, how, how what do I do here? You know." So I says, well, what you need is a BTN plot, and that stands for better than nothing. And basically just said, folks, all you do is turn off every other row and crank up the population on the rows that are still planting to as much as you can or up to twice the normal population. And in a lot of mechanical transmission planters, you can't get past about 54 or 57,000. And so, and then let me know how it turns out. You know, don't do the whole farm, just do a little pass and all that. And so I had like 30 folks that, that did that uh, in nine different states. Uh, and a lot of them I didn't hear anymore. Either it was a disaster or they got busy or whatever. But I did get plot results back, uh, yield data uh, from seven folks that did not have cover crops and five that did. And, and so when people ask me about now, what I say is, don't mess with it if you're not doing cover crops. You know, you're, you're, don't kid yourself. You're not going to get more corn. You may get more weeds. But if you want to do cover crops or if you want to graze or you got something else in mind or you have a real erosion issue, uh, which is a reason to do cover crops, you should do that. So this was a, a really interesting group of folks. Uh, uh, I think there was one center pivot irrigation uh, out in Sterling. Now, that's the, that's the guy in the center lower picture. Uh, uh, it's just uh, my good friend, uh, Bill Stengel up in uh, Beaver Dam, Wisconsin, or actually in uh, Madison, I think is where he lives. This statement, we had a little field day up at Charlie Hammer's place. Bill said, don't plant more 60-inch rows than you're willing to weed by hand. Because he had done some on Charlie Hammer's farm, a little one, and 
Charlie didn't like weeds either, and so Bill was out there uh, pulling weeds. And uh, I expect that some of you have done, I know Jackson done a little of that and, uh, over the time. Uh, and so I've gotten a number of different pictures, and it's generally kind of the same uh, response. Uh, this is a tabular summary. I would draw your eye to the yellow in the lower right, and basically it says that that the the average of these plots was 95% of what the corn yield was in that field in that year. Uh, what I found more encouraging was the cover crops did not appear to hurt the yield uh, of the 60 inch rows, and that that was a fear I had. Um, and and uh, so so basically, it, it kind of went back and said, well, yeah, it's pretty close. Uh, now uh, the practical farmers of Iowa. And, and I know uh, Jack Boyer, who's in the call, was uh, back up here, was uh, involved in that. Uh, they have statistical data. Uh, I think one or two of these are also in the Practical Farmers of Iowa uh, group and, and go from there. So bottom line, the number is 5%. That asterisk, that asterisk I told you about at the start of the meeting, you can, if you're willing to live with 5%, that means as much as 17% or as good as 9% of gain, uh, it's worth taking a look at this. Uh, the really the sweet spot is grazing. So if any of you in the call uh, have people that, that, that you can get to come graze on your property or you've got your own livestock, uh, it's really kind of a no-brainer. But I'm not, I don't think there's, I just don't know that it's worth getting back into into livestock or not. Uh, I'm borrowing this from Gabe Brown. Uh, I, I uh, read his book recently. I found it to be good. Um, I I think he's he's on track and pretty much aligns with what everybody is saying, with the exception of number five. Uh, now, in a in a dream world, if I owned a thousand acres that people wanted to rent from me. I would say, yeah, I'll rent to the, the ground as long as you'll no-till it or at the very worst strip-till it, uh, put it in wide rows, have a highly diverse cover crop in there. Um, I think I think you could rent my land. Uh, and and so ultimately, I hope that's where some of you guys are headed is, is trying to do that, trying to build soil health because building soil health will get you into cover crops and that'll help you with your water absorption and runoff and we talked about floods, you know, so all of that. I also hope that, that you can get by leveraging the little guys below the surface rather than having to chase cows around above the surface. But uh, to Gabe Brown, that would probably be blasphemy. So I, I really appreciate that. This, this, I'm pretty proud that this was a fairly comprehensive test program that gave eh, reasonably good data and nobody spent a nickel on anything of it. There was... I know we've got a guy in the NCRS in the group uh, I saw, and there was no grant money. Uh, there should have been. Uh, people, I really think that this is a really good thing to do, um, but but we just did it, you know. And a lot of folks didn't didn't want their names battered out there. They probably didn't want the phone calls or the emails, and, and maybe they didn't want to know what was going people to know what was going on. Um, and then there's a guy named Leroy Dykeman who's been doing this. I only made his acquaintance here in the last year or so, but he's been working on solar corridor and sunlight for many years. Uh, and it's a lonely journey. So with that in mind, I think I'm done, Steve. And I, uh, uh,
Jack, Steve, if you could enable yeah. Jack's mic. Uh, Jack, would you speak just yep. a little bit to the biomass if you're willing? Yep, go ahead, Jack. Fantastic, fantastic, Bob. Go ahead, Jack. Yes, and, and uh, the link that you see on, on Bob's uh, page there, the Practical Farmers, is where uh, my research and, and I think three others and I think one one besides me is in Bob's data as well. But anyway, kind of the gist of it is, is for biomass, I have biomass data for the cover crop, but I don't for the uh, for the corn. Um, I think one of the other participants in this practical farmers did take his for silage, and I just don't remember. That might be in that report of how his silage turned out. But in any case, my biomass is in the 60-inch rows. It created more than 10 times the amount of biomass in the 60s than it did in the 30s, and that is about two tons per acre of biomass. And that's for and the cover crop, the cover crop biomass. Cover crop, above ground cover crop only. Mm -hmm. And it also, in those 60-inch rows, because you had more biomass and the mix that I had in there, it produced 100 pounds of nitrogen that was captured in that biomass versus 7 pounds in the 30-inch rows. So, I, and, and kind of as a follow-up to all of this, this yeah. year I'm going to repeat in that same plot and move over 15 inches so that I'm planting on top of where all those cover crops were and try to evaluate how much of that nitrogen do I get to take credit for. Well, that's great. I mean, I'm going to ask a quick question here. Um, do you think it's possible if we would lean on legume-type cover crops that we could really reduce our nitrogen rates to grow the corn? Well, uh, I would say that in, in my plot, it was cowpeas, gar, annual ryegrass, cereal rye, rapeseed, uh, flax, and buckwheat. And by far, the cowpeas were the dominant species. Mm. And, and so that, you know, everything survived in the 60s, where in the 30s, uh, only the annual ryegrass, cowpeas, and rape is all that survived in, in those rows. So it, it gives you a much broader opportunity to put different species in there that, that just won't survive in the 30s. Did the cowpeas interfere with harvest? Because I'm assuming they climbed up the corn. The cowpeas the cow that I used were iron and clay, and okay. they're ones that tend to run instead of climb. Now, okay. it, there were a few that were climbing, but it did not in any way interfere with harvest. Awesome. Well, this is great information. Um, any any people have any questions at this point? Uh, Cody, I see you're on. I expected you to chime in. So Cody has experience with this. Uh, what's your comment or question, Cody? Yeah, so a comment kind of leading to a question. Uh, I guess I'm going to start out. How did the cereal rye handle the shade in the 60? Um, and because we've been doing a lot of interseeding early on 30s, this is kind of why I got interested in it. We were interseeding early, but we still wanted to seed rye so we could plant beans into the rye. So, so does this? You think this gives us a good option to plant all of our cover crops at once and still have the ability to to plant green next year? This is Jack. I assume you want me to try that one, but but yes, in the 60-inch rows, yep. my cereal rye survived. In the 30s, it did not, and this is my. I've had four years of trial trying to find species that will survive in 30-inch rows, 
and serial ride just doesn't have a chance. It just it just smothers. At least in our area. That's exactly what I've seen. Yep, that's exactly what I've seen as well. Other questions? Comments? I'm I'm gonna jump in on the silage uh, question yeah. and I and I didn't read that quite right. Uh, I did some uh, individual edge roll harvest of silage in uh, for a guy uh, that had that interest, and and it was surprising. The biomass from the silage wasn't it was it was aligned with the corn yield, so you got more corn on the edge, more grain. You also got by the same proportion more silage, but you're giving but you're also giving up some ground. So. I don't think there's a big benefit from just the biomass of the of the silage crop with mm-hmm. with uh, mm-hmm. sixty inch rows. Uh, so I, I I would I would be reluctant to say that yeah you're going to get more silage in sixty inch rows. Yeah, but what I'm what I'm hearing here is if you're let's just say this would maybe favor more northern climates, northern areas that just simply don't have planting of cover crops as an opportunity, that this would be a very viable uh, concept, uh, maybe even in without cattle. I know I understand what you're saying, but let's just say the further north you go, uh, if, and if your yield hit is minimal, no matter if it's corn silage or grain, it's either this is the way to get a cover crop planted or you don't have a cover crop. You want to comment on that? I, I think that's right, Jack. You're much more knowledgeable more knowledgeable than I am. But if you go back to my map, we had a number of folks in Minnesota. Uh, let's see here. We had uh, Ananka is like central Minnesota, I think. Um, and... Uh, and they and they did okay. Uh, Hayfield is like up by the Twin Cities, right? Mm. Um, so they would both be fairly yeah, close to the Twin Cities. Yeah. So I'm. Uh, yeah, I I think there's. I this is really this is the enabler of cover cover crops is the way I'm uh, the way I'm envisioning. Mm. Uh, just one other little housekeeping thing in that link that's on the bottom there, wherever it looks like a space that there's an underscore because the HTTP doesn't like spaces so the the link there if it looks like a space I didn't I couldn't figure out how to make it not underlined so 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 yeah well I'll tell you what Bob I'm gonna send that link out to everybody so I'll just I'll just find it I'll send it out to everybody so you guys can click on it then in the email that I bought my follow-up email yeah it's a very nicely written uh, two or three little make four or five page report Uh, it's well done Yep. Other uh, uh, questions about wide row corn? Do you have another comment, Bob? Quick or uh, no? I'm just reading. I'm just reading here. So yep. Ian, okay. Yeah. Other comments or questions? Hey, Steve. This is Bob. Back. Go ahead, Lloyd. Oh, okay, Bob. Go ahead, Bob. Go ahead. Um, in my grave vineyard, I'm planting a 50-inch cover crop and leaving a space of three to four inches, but underneath my grape row. And, mm-hmm. and this is the same thing, but in my grapes, I only do that one spot every year where in the corn you can alternate. Do you see a problem, mm-hmm. or will the all the microbes and the earthworms go within that spot with no cover crop? Uh, I'll just say right on that, that uh, I, I think 
there's there's the earthworms do have somewhat somewhat of a movement. So you're not talking about a big area that's not essentially covered. The roots cross into that, I'm sure. But other people want to comment on that question. Anybody else? Okay, uh, Lloyd, you got a question? Yeah, our question is uh, uh, regarding spray or, or the sequence. Uh, you plant corn, and then you intercede a cover crop, or do you have a fall-growing cover crop and then plant corn into it? And then what do you spray to control the weeds? I'll, I'll uh, attempt that. This is Jack. Um, I did, I've done it different ways, but I guess – what seems to work the best for me is that uh, I, I'm 100% cover crop, so I have the burn down of the, of the growing cover crop, plant the corn, and I apply some pre-herbicides that have a short half-life. And then in June, when the corn is at V3, V4, somewhere in that neighborhood, then I plant the rest of the cover crops, and, and that seems to take care of it. I, in this particular trial, I thought I could plant those cowpeas in that blank row, but as it turned out, I had a cool, wet spring, and those cowpeas, they came up and just sit there. When the ground warmed up enough for them to take off again, well, then so did the water hemp. So I had to come back and burn that all off, and then I put cowpeas in my mix and replanted it, and then it, it kept up pretty well with the weed control. But certainly, if you don't have cover crops in there, weeds will be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you want to name some of the herbicide brands that have short half-life? Uh, Outlook is one, but but uh, I, I just suggest you go to Pennsylvania State University's data. They've got a whole spreadsheet that, that kind of gives the half-life of, of uh, various herbicides and, and pick one of those. Okay. Just curious, David uh, Kleinschmidt from Central Illinois. Okay, go ahead. Whoever that was. Oh, Cody, go ahead, Cody. Nope. Yeah, yeah, Jack. So you you said you've got uh, produced about 100 pounds of nitrogen. Uh, we know legumes aren't going to produce a lot of nitrogen in a in a heavily fertilized soil. What are you doing to make sure? Are you are you applying your nutrients for the corn in row, and then is that allowing your legumes in between the row to to produce more nitrogen, or how are you managing that? Uh, I'd, I'd say that I've got a lot to learn there, but I put a relatively low, for me, a relatively low amount of nitrogen down pre, and it was five inches off the row. Now, kind of the, the downside of that is that that blank row also had nitrogen put down five inches off of it. But And then those cover crops were planted two 10-inch rows between every 30 inches. So the 30-inch rows... It'd have, it'd have a row every 30 inch of which two of them were cover crops and the 60 inch row had four cover crop rows in them. So mm -hmm. the cover crop rows were minimum five inches off, off of the nitrogen or 15 inches off of the nitrogen. Okay. Any comments on that, Cody? Because I remember talking to you you are stressing the importance of this is make sure you get most of the nitrogen close to the row. Yeah, we, we were experiencing some yield drags, uh, nothing huge. I, I think it was about an average of 11 bushels, uh, but it was just in a broadcast uh, urea situation. So 
Um, we hmm. really wanted to see it. We had better luck and we could get the nutrients or especially the nitrogen applied as close to the row as possible, uh, which would make sense. And but then we're trying to figure out how can we how can we maybe cut back on some anorates in in order to get the legume to produce some more. So I was I'm really happy to see this this data. So David from uh, Illinois, if you're if you're on, I wouldn't mind hearing some of your perspective. Uh, will this work in Central Illinois? I know there were some trials. Are you associated with, or what's your thoughts? I wasn't associated with any of the trials, but uh, going forward, I'm going to be doing some trials of uh, some wide row corn, looking at some 60 inch corn, doing some 30, 60, and some 20, 40 trials. Um, obviously, I think the uh, you know the herbicide half life deal is kind of one of our our things we really got to pay attention to, but. We're hoping that if we have enough cover crop um, stand from uh, our, our fall seeding to be using that as kind of a, a suppressant, that we might be okay, you know, suppressing out some of the water hemp issues. So I'm anxious to see what's going, what's going to happen with it. Uh, uh, one of my friends is working with it. He's building the, I don't know if he'll have it ready for this year or not, but be able to basically intercede wide drop and, and, basically banned spray over his corn rows at the same mm. time. So that'll be interesting mm -hmm. to see how that works. Yeah. Good. Okay, great. Uh, Aaron from uh, Nebraska, I wouldn't mind hearing, what are you thinking out there? You think you're going to try this? Some people are interested in it or what's your thoughts? We've got a lot of people interested in this concept for sure. Uh, they're doing interseeding trials out in central Nebraska. Um, I'd point Cody probably to the, a practical farmers website to look at Chris Teachout's data. He had a good study in I think 17 probably uh, where he did a flat rate of 40 pounds over and then he, he had different legumes interseeded um, like this in 30 inch rows um, and showed some, some really good benefits from the legumes in his yield. So um, I, I'm really recommending uh, warm season legumes for this this concept that's the ones we've seen survive the best and, and actually offer a benefit um one other thing i'd point out is this this concept is not how to get started in cover crops i think this is after you've got your soil working for you and you're looking for diversity for that extra window for that opportunity to get a return on investment etc um but after corn is a really good time to plant uh, a standard cover crop, drill it, and get your feet wet, and, and move forward. So that's kind of my two cents worth. Oh, that's great. Good, good food for thought. Hey, Jack, you might have something to say, Jack? Yes. Um, I, I guess uh, I, I would just say that Chris Teachout was a part of this uh, research program that, that uh, Bob's showing the link to there. But I'd, I'd also say the problem with people as far north as I am, planting it after the harvest of the corn, you just don't have much time left to get any growth in the fall. And so it, we're, this is trying to figure out a way in a corn crop to get something established. But I would also agree, this is not the place to start. You know, start after soybeans or something else. You know, there's, there's easier places to, to get your feet wet with it. I wouldn't mind hearing both uh, Bob and and Jack and even Cody. You seem to be the most experienced on the on the webinar today. So you know we all know in the cover cropping world, 
that we don't like to evaluate things on an annual basis. Uh, you know, I, I like to say we have to evaluate these concepts on a 10-year basis. So with that in mind, uh, yeah, we're, we say a 5% yield hit. Everybody talks about yields, uh, but in the concept of five years here, Jack, uh, uh, Cody, if we, if we enter into this concept, this system, and we start beginning to see the advantages of the cover crop spring forth, I think that that 5% is going to quickly disappear in the economics here, and we're going to be far ahead. Any thoughts from you guys on that long term? Steve, uh, let me let me jump in on that one. This is Bob yep. Record. Yep. Uh, my my plan for this year, and and I'm kind of stuck with working with the scorched earth environment. But on the other hand, it's a clean it's a clean environment, so mm -hmm. I can then just talk about the sunlight. Uh, right. I intend to push the population both up and down, and I'm trying to figure out a way to get a few more varieties in there. Uh, so what I'm committed to is being a better enabler of this. Uh, you guys are all more, much more expert in cover crops than I am, but I'm, I'm continuing to look for ways to turn that 5% drag into a 5% plus because mm -hmm. once we get to that point, then people will be a lot more receptive to it. Uh, sure. In terms of the guys who aren't <clears throat> currently doing cover crops. So. No, and it could, it could open up the door for people to try cover crops, you know. Yeah. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll go next on that. I mean, I think if we can eliminate the extra pass, as I said before, we were, we were doing a lot of early interseeding, and then we had folks coming back after corn harvest to drill rye. If we can just eliminate that double pass of planting, and, and now we have everything growing at once, I think that eliminates that 5% already because we're going to see that benefit back. Uh, when it comes to beans the next year, and also whenever it does come back to corn, we should see a benefit. Uh, I think we're also forgetting, uh, what about the possibility of hosting pollinators in between the rows and, and, yep. and other beneficial insects, and maybe giving us the ability to save some money on going to conventional seed versus a traded seed? I think there's lots of things to look at there outside of just the yield. Uh, yep. So I, I easily think it could pay for itself. Awesome. That's great. Uh, Jack, you want to wrap up that question? Okay. And, and I'd agree a lot with what Cody just said. And, and uh, uh, you know, interceding early in the V4, V6 timeframe, this is, like I say, my fifth year, I think, that I'm starting with that. But I've seen no yield difference, and some of those years have been in seed corn where I got really good growth on the cover crop, and the seed corn company is the one that did the yield analysis for me, and they're the ones that came back and said that there was no yield difference, so that meant a lot to me for them to say it versus me do the harvesting and doing it as well, but also, you know, the, uh, I guess the summary with one year of wide growth experience under my belt, that unless you're interested in building soil health, or you're interested in grazing, you just well stay with 30 inch rows. Now, I may that may change as I get more experience, but that'd be where I'd be right now because the weed control is a bigger thing to, to think about. And so you have to manage it and, and deal with it in that, that regard. As far as pollinators concerned, you know, that's part of why I had the buckwheat in there. And I saw lots of, lots of different insects in there that I never saw before. 
how many of them were protecting my corn. I don't know insects well enough to, to be able to yep. tell you that. They certainly were interested. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Well, I'll tell you what, I really, really appreciate this great conversation. I'm just going <clears> to <throat> swing back to Bob. Do you have a closing thought or two, and then I'll close it out? Uh, yeah. I, I Number one, I want to thank uh, you all for your participation and, uh, and input, especially Mr. Boyer. Jack and I are a good tag team on this stuff, uh, he, and he keeps me on the straight and narrow. Uh, one real quick one. There was a little discussion about uh, sweet corn. Jack mm. created a really clever way to do this with low uh, input, and that is just take your planter, turn off every other row, and then go, go down the pass, and then turn around, make a U-turn offset by about six inches or, or three or four inches, and plant the second row. So what you get is a poor man's twin row, and that could work in any 60-inch stuff except the two passes, which people don't want to do. But for a sweet corn plot, uh, if you don't have a fancy sweet corn planter or whatever, that could be really clever. So that's great. Uh, I just, okay. just want to adjust that. Oh, that's that's uh, awesome. I go ahead. Uh, so with that, I think I, I that's all I would say. Other than thank you all. It's been this has been fun. <clears throat> well, I'll tell you what. Thank you, Bob. Uh, <clears throat> if we'd be in a room, we'd be clapping for you right now. So uh, I really appreciate your enthusiasm. Uh, you did really well on this webinar. And uh, so thank you so much. I just want to say that next week I'm going to have another guest speaker, certainly a big uh, important topic in certain areas of the country. going to talk about how you can use cover crops to manage salinity, where we have these high salt soils and so forth. And uh, the, the best person I know of for that is uh, Abby Wick from uh, North Dakota State University. So going to have Abby on here next week. It's going to be on Friday because I'll be in Indiana most of the week. But next Friday, the 12th, is our next webinar with Abby Wick. So uh, thank you guys all for participating. Stay curious. Keep learning. See you next week.